right and what would have happened if we moved to this city instead of this city and on and on and on the you can just go through the scenarios of man life could have been a lot different and then you interject just the reality as people get older the idea of regret and the idea of having a magical time machine that you could go back in time and actually change some of the ways that you blew it from small ways to things that dominate our story and um, so over the next couple of weeks, what we're going to do is, is look at dealing with the topic of our past, not to drum up bad memories for anyone, but because honestly, for a lot of us, our pasts are not just in our past. They are affecting our present and they color our view of the future. So we want to be able to see what does God actually say about our past. And in Isaiah 61 this morning, we're going to see a God that not only relates to people in their past, but he owns all of the story of his people. And he wants to deal with our past, not just in a way that glosses over it, but redeems it um, and actually brings us hope and joy. And so Isaiah 61 is written to a group of people that are daily reminded of their failure. This is a group of people that are experiencing exile. They have honestly blown it in a ton of ways. They were forcibly removed from their home. They are daily reminded of their failures. And so I know for for many of us in this room, that can be our daily experience where we're reminded of our failures over and over. And, And God does something pretty unique. He doesn't only speak a word of redemption about our past, but he actually sends a redeemer. And that's what the promise of Isaiah 61. This is an Old Testament picture of Jesus. So if you would um, have your Bibles open to Isaiah 61, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then verse 7. And if you're able, would you stand with me just to, because we want to draw attention to God's Word. That's why we do this. Um, we're, We're placing ourselves under His Word. These are the most important words that will be spoken here this morning. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And this is the effect. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Verse 7. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that right now that the spirit of the sovereign Lord would be upon us. 
that you would bring good news to the poor, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you would set captives free. I pray that today would be a marked day of freedom in all of our stories, um, that this wouldn't be just a mere potentiality that we read about, but it would be a, a day of rejoicing in what you have done by sending a Redeemer. Uh, to do this, Father, we need you to send your Spirit. This is an automatic. I know that shame is active right now, fighting against this good news. I pray that you would help us to be attentive to your voice and to your word for the sake and the fame of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So as we look at Isaiah 61, you might be asking the question, why would we even address our past? Um, For some of us, this is as appealing as going to the dentist and having them scrape our teeth, you know? Um, Because the pain, you know, the the pain of the past is a very real um, and can be a very constant uh, nagging thing for us. But the truth is that God... The reason that we have to do this is because God has made us to be remembering creatures. We are made in his image. We have the faculty to understand and make sense out of reality. And so the danger with that is when we as humans encounter pain, we don't want to go back into situations that cause us pain. But many of the situations that we have encountered pain in in the past are things that God has actually called good, right? Like relationships, you know? I mean, if, if you've been hurt or burned by the church at certain times, um, it, it could be very easy to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw from relationships. I'm going to withdraw from people. But that's actually the means of grace that God actually has to begin to redeem our stories. And that's just one example. So we want to be able to look at our past the way that God views our past and to look at those um, in a very redemptive way. And so there's, there's, a, there's a few ways that most of us probably view our past. And some of us glorify our past, right? So I call this the Uncle Rico syndrome, right? So any Napoleon Dynamite fans will get that. You know, if Coach would have put me in in the fourth quarter, we would have won state, you know? I mean, this is... Um, if you are glorifying your past, you probably have a shrine in your home somewhere. Um, it probably casts this large shadow uh, over your children if you are a parent. And um, just the idea of glorifying our past um, can keep us from enjoying the present. I mean, it can be the season that was wonderful and something that we celebrate. We all have moments to celebrate, but we don't want to just glorify our past. And then secondarily... Um, I think this is the most common approach, and it's the most dangerous approach, and that's to bury our past. Um, I would compare this to the person that won't go to the doctor when they're sick, you know, and you end up, and I'm that guy, so you end up breathing and coughing unhealth on everybody. Everybody else knows that you need to go to the doctor, but you actually don't want to go to the doctor. That can be a way that we engage with our past. We just ignore it completely, but we're leaking unhealth on other people, whether that's a friendship or a spouse or any of those kinds of things. So we bury our past. Um, The third approach, um, and this is the one I'm probably most prone to, you can get stuck in your past, right? So we talked about Back to the Future. 
You know, Marty McFly could have gotten stuck in 1955, like if everything didn't work out well. Well, there's a way that you can go back and you can look at your past and you can be absolutely paralyzed by it. Uh, Just give you an example in my own life. About January, uh, I started reading some books on working through our past, particularly a book called Relational Soul. Uh, November, December last year, January, we went away with the elders. And there was a moment on this retreat that I just had to pull the guys aside and I said, listen, there are things that have happened years ago in my story. There are things that have happened to me personally. There are things that I have done that I am just absolutely weighed down by. And I said, I need you guys to absolutely just preach the gospel to me. I need you to pray for me. And in that moment, I mean, it's just like real freedom and real grace comes, right? I'm not saying that, that, that those same issues don't come up, but there are, there's a marked grace when we link arms as a community and say, hey, we all enter this battle together. Like we all are, we all have a past. We all have things that have interrupted our story. And, and community is part of just God healing our stories. And so what we see God's approach to dealing with the past um, in Scripture is this idea of redemptive remembering. He says um, he wants us to be able to engage our past without being stuck, without being haunted by it. Um, he constantly invites the people of God to remember. Remember there was a time that you were cut off. Remember there was a time when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Remember there was a time when you were my enemies. He, he doesn't gloss over the fact that we all have a past, but then he says, I want you to remember now that you're my beloved. I want you to remember now that I have overcome your sin and I have overcome your shame. So there's a healthy way that we can deal with our past where we can learn from it and we can actually glorify God in the midst of us. And so that brings me to my first point this morning, and that's God's good news for our past is greater than we've dared to hope. God's good news for our past is greater than we've dared to hope. Look at verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So if you were going to evaluate 21st century Southern Bible Belt culture, and this was the measure, verses 1 through 3, how are we doing? How are we doing with this idea that this is a message that is dripping with good news. That this is good news for the poor. That Jesus actually came to bind up the brokenhearted. That he came to comfort those who mourn. That that is to actually be the flavor and the experience of the people of God. That he came to actually set people free. That he came to give liberty to the captives. People that are in prisons. That doesn't have to be a literal prison. It can be a prison of your own making. Whether it's your own past or your own story. He actually came into your story to set you free. 
This is the, the passion of God that the good news is greater than we have dared to hope. And so there's a difference for us as the people of God of just merely acknowledging this as some theological category, that God brings good news to the poor, that he binds up the brokenhearted. If we, men, if we only give mental assent to these truths, we dilute Christianity, right? We have to apply this to the bone and the marrow of our stories. This has to go to the places that hurt the most. And I love just the, the phrases in this. He came to bring good news to the poor, to people that are normally overlooked, to people that are normally um, marginalized and oppressed. He says, I come to bring good news to you. So if you have been forgotten, if you have been rejected, this message is for you. And not only that, he says, I came to bind up the brokenhearted. What good news. What a God we serve. That he actually cares about what brings you pain. And he actually, he doesn't want to superficially deal with it so that we bury it. He actually wants to bind it up and he wants to make it healthy. You know, it's just like a bone that needs to be reset. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bind up the brokenhearted. And he wants us to actually be free. Um, The New Testament says it like this, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That there is supposed to be inside the people of God this freedom, freedom from not just the power and the penalty of sin, but free from the effects of shame and condemnation and guilt. He came to set us free. So that's the message that we are invited into. And shame is really the active force of evil that's looking to oppose everything that God wants to do in our life wants to tell us that these things are not for us. So we're going to spend the rest of our time to look at one specific aspect of dealing with our past, and that's the issue of shame. My second point is this, replacing the shame of our stories with the honor of the gospel. That's what verse 7 says. Look at it with me. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion, and they shall have everlasting joy. So not only does God want to deal with our shame problem, he actually wants to move us to a place of honor. Psalm 3 describes God as the lifter of our heads. I love that phrase because shame causes us to be downcast, to look at the floor, to look at all the mess that's going on inside of us. And Psalm 3 says that he's the lifter of our heads. He wants to give us a double portion of honor. There's something that's being communicated here, that there is an honor that we experience that we wouldn't have experienced even if we didn't go through the shame. That's how radical the grace of God is, that there is a freedom that comes as we are set free by this Messiah who is ultimately Jesus, that he brings uh, honor into our story, that there is a worth and a dignity that God wants to restore regardless of what you have walked through in your story. And uh, a book that has 
served me greatly over the years, in particular this week as I've just been preparing for this, is a, is a book called Shame Interrupted. It's by Ed Welch. Um, he is a, a Christian counselor, psychologist. He was one of my counseling teachers. He came from Westminster. Uh, he also wore really funny ties, and so we used to give him a hard time about that. But uh, Ed is a brilliant man. And um, as he began to write this book and begin to work through this material, just like anybody else that kind of has a body of material, he, he, he kind of wanted to field test it. And so he was a seminary professor, and he was in a room, and uh, he asked the question, how many of you in this room experience shame? And uh, at that moment, he actually felt exposed. He was hoping that maybe one or two people would just bravely raise their hand and say, yes, that applies to me. And then somehow, he, in the middle of it, he flipped the question a little bit, and he said, how many of you have experienced debilitating shame? And when he added that word debilitating, every hand in the room went up. Because everyone knew what it was like to be paralyzed by shame, right? We could do a similar exercise in this room, and every hand could or should go up. Every person in this room has a daily battle and experience with shame, right? And so the power of that is to know that you are not alone. Shame wants to isolate you. Shame wants to keep just you suffering in the dark, that your story is somehow unique, that your circumstances are somehow unique, that your circumstances are somehow um, different than what everyone else is going on. And what Isaiah 61 says, and, and, and what we're going to experience together, is shame is everyone's story, but it doesn't have to be the end of the story. And so, in his book, Shame Interrupted, this is how he describes shame and defines shame. See if it resonates with you. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did or something that's done to you or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Shame connects three human experiences. You feel like an outcast You don't belong. You feel naked while everyone else is walking around with their clothes on. You feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen, and what others see is not pretty. You feel unclean. Something is wrong with you. You are dirty. Even worse, you are contaminated. And he says there's a difference between being a bit muddy and harboring a deadly, contagious virus. Shame attaches itself to us by things that we have done and by things that have been done to us. And its ultimate purpose is to isolate us from God and to isolate us from one another. It's meant to keep us from being the people that God has actually created us to be. And the reason that we're actually walking through this for the next two weeks is because unbeknownst to most of us, some of the things that we have experienced either privately or personally drive what we do in the present. So I want to share just a a few case studies that I've come across and I think they will resonate with you. The first is the example of a young boy. His 
father is harsh. He's driven. And he tells the little boy that he's never going to amount to anything. And this is the constant refrain that this little boy hears over and over and over again. You're worthless. You're not going to amount to anything. So what happens? How does that affect the present? Well, that young boy decides, I'm not going to be worthless. I'm going to show him, right? And so the voice of the father becomes the voice of shame. And that young boy becomes a very driven, performance-driven kind of person that wants to achieve and wants to prove and becomes a workaholic. And he achieves a whole lot of success in life, but he's not even able to enjoy any of those things because he's so driven. Because all he can hear in the background is the voice of his father saying, you are worthless, right? That's how that works. Use an example of a young girl. A young girl grows up with a mother who is obsessed with the way that she looks. And so she subtly transfers that to her younger daughter. She begins to attach a stigma to food. Like, hey, you don't want to eat that because you're going to gain weight. And there becomes a shame that's, a, you know, that's really attached to food. And then that actually leads to binging and purging and bulimia. I mean, that's the ultimate body's response to feeling shame over food. Like, I can't even keep this in my own body, right? And there's varying degrees of that, right? Voices from the past drive what we do in the present. Shame affects married couples' sexuality, whether that's brokenness that happened in the story just because of um, just our own sin or sin that was done to us. Um, It can drive a wedge in marriages where people just honestly don't want to be together because they feel so dirty, right? God wants to enter into that space, and he wants to speak a better word. He wants to speak a word of deliverance and, and purity that he only can bring. Shame is so dangerous because it makes us feel unworthy of connection with other people, unworthy of connection with God. Ed Welch also says this. He says, shame lives in the community. The community can feel like a courtroom. It says, you don't belong. You are unacceptable, unclean, and disgraced because you are wrong. You have sinned, guilt, or wrong has been done to you. Or you are associated with those who are disgraced or outcast. The shame person feels worthless, expects rejection, and needs cleansing, fellowship, love, and acceptance. So the very thing that shame wants to keep us from is the only thing that we need. Just in my own example, we need a voice from outside to say that you're loved, that you're accepted, that there's fellowship and hope here. Not only does shame affect our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, shame's ultimate purpose is to keep you from doing the things that God has actually called you to do. Listen to this quote from Kurt Thompson. He is a medical doctor who has studied the effects of shame on the brain. Shame literally rewires the brain, and there are neuropathways. I know there's some medical people in here, so I won't get too deep because uh, then I'll end up looking like an idiot, and I'll be shamed. Um, But there's this 
the, the shame has this experience where the neuropathways um, are just, they're, they're automatically wired in the direction of shame. And this gives a whole new idea to the meaning of Romans 12, where we need to renew our mind and to begin to think and to speak new ways. But listen to this. This is the ultimate effect of shame. He says, shame is not just a consequence of something that our first parents did in the Garden of Eden. This is the the key phrase, and this has changed how I view shame. It is the emotional weapon that evil uses to corrupt our relationships with God and each other, and two, disintegrate any and all gifts of vocational vision and creativity. These gifts include any area of endeavor that promote goodness, beauty, and joy for the life of others, whether that be teaching our first graders, loving our spouse well, managing for us, conducting healing prayer service, creating a new medical technology, offering psychotherapy, or composing symphonies. Shame is a primary means to keep us from using the gifts that we have been given. Has that been your experience? And those gifts enable us to flourish as the light-bearing community of Jesus, followers who work to create spaces for others who wish to wish to join it, do so. Shame, therefore, is not simply an unfortunate, random, emotional event that came with us out of the primordial evolutionary soup. It is both a source and result of evil's active assault on God's creation and a way for evil to try to hold out until the new heaven and earth appear at the consummation of history. So shame is also a spotlight. It is an unwelcome visitor, but it actually shines a spotlight on the things that God's actually called you to do. So, my question for us today is, what would be the things that you would do immediately if shame were not a part of your story? Those are the things that God's inviting you into freedom. This is what a double portion of honor actually looks like. Um, John Piper, who was really one of the most famous pastors of the 20, 20th century, at least, and he said the closest that he ever came to being fired was when he writ, had written an article in 1984 entitled Masturbation and Missions. And it's just as awkward in this room as it was for him. Um, <laughs> But he wrote an article that said, um, basically to this extent, that people feel so weighed down by the reality of their own shame and their own sexual brokenness that they will not step forward into the plan and the purposes of God. That people have literally not been equipped to deal with the issue of shame and guilt. And so, um, you know, he ultimately ended up giving this as a message Uh, Passion 2007. And the reality is that we all have brokenness that exists inside of our stories, but there's no amount of brokenness that can trump God's purposes for our life, right? Um, So he wants to actually begin to set us free. And the amazing thing is, not only does he want to do that in our lives personally, just so that we have a good relationship with God, he actually wants to use the healing that we receive to be able to comfort other people. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 61. This is more than just rebuilding buildings. This is 
rebuilding communities. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. The devastations of many generations is not just buildings that needed to be reconstructed. This is talking about hearts that were wayward, hearts that were running away from God instead of hearts that were running to God. God wants to redeem and restore our stories in such a way that we become an agent of reconciliation and restoration in the lives of other people. In New Testament language, the comfort that we receive from God, we comfort others with. Now, let's look specifically at how God does this, right? Because this is really important for us. This is not a therapeutic technique, right? This is an Old Testament picture of Jesus who comes into the shame of human experience and redeems shamed people by being shamed himself, right? This isn't just so that we feel better about ourselves. This is a Savior that is actually entering into the story. And if you look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, he was always moving towards people on the margins. He was always moving towards people in their shame. There's not a person that came to him for healing that he turned away. It's always saying that he healed them all, that he drew them out. He, he actually went looking for those that wouldn't even come, come to him. I mean, his mission was to come and to look for people that were isolated, people that thought they were disqualified from the promises of God. He loved those that all of society had deemed unlovable. He accepted those that were rejected. He touched people that were absolutely deemed untouchable. And and we have to understand this. This is where healing comes. You have to let him love you in your unloveliness. You have to let him touch you where you feel untouchable, right? There's just this grace has to be specific and it has to have an address. It was not for abstract sins that were either done by us or committed against us that Jesus died. There's actually real power for our stories. And so you you see the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, there are blind beggars that are lining up on the side of the road and saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, there's a desperation. Luke chapter 8, there's a woman with an issue of blood. Twelve years she had been afflicted, spent all of her money been isolated from community and she hears about this man that's coming by and she doesn't even have I mean you can tell she's dealing with the shame of being isolated and she's crawling on her hands and knees through the crowd just so she can touch the hem of his garment and she's healed right there's this desperation and I think we have to be able to to pick up on that the the first step to dealing with the brokenness of our stories is this idea that we need to be desperate and crying out for Jesus to heal us um, in our broken, the brokenness of our stories. We can't just bury it in the sand. We actually say, I need grace. I need grace to reach me right here. But the ultimate triumph of Jesus over shame was on the cross. It should be on the screen for you. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and this is the key phrase, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 says Jesus hates shame. He despises it. This is the active assault of evil on the people of God. And so to deal with our shame problem, Jesus himself was shamed. He was crucified publicly. (laughs) Our renaissance (laughs) art does no justice to the reality of the scandal and the shame of the cross. They always put a loincloth on Jesus because it is too embarrassing for us to depict what really took place on the cross. Jesus hung there naked on a cross, exposed to all forms of evil, all forms of mockery. Why? He was shamed because he wants us to be set free from the shame that exists in our life. Um, He experienced shame in his body on the tree so that we could go free. Shame threatens to expose us, but the reality is Jesus was fully exposed to all forms of shame. And, And we have to get this. There's this transfer. His shaming was our shaming. He was shamed so that we're set free. Like his exposure and hatred of shame is our escape. That really was our death. Our shame story died with Jesus on the cross. And the trick for us is to begin to live in the good of that each and every day progressively. It's already been paid for. Everything that has caused you shame or will cause you shame. Ed Welch says this, No matter how stubbornly, Resistant to change, your shame might be. Witnessing extreme shame like this will move your shame to second place in your thoughts. So the only escape for us as the people of God in the midst of the experience of shame that has attached itself to our stories is to come in contact with a greater shame. And that's the shame of the cross. But the good news for us is that Jesus was not only shamed on the cross, but he triumphed and he was raised from the dead. And we now get to be clothed, if you read the rest of Isaiah 61, with the robe of righteousness where we are spotless and pure, where we receive the double honor of being known and forgiven and loved and used by God, that he actually wants to redeem our stories to be able to tell his story to the world. Now, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band up. Um, We we just need to spend some time lingering here. Shame in this moment is going to try to hold out some last vestiges of hope. But when it is exposed to the cross, it must submit. I'm not going to take communion today, but I want to... Just do a spiritual exercise with you all from Mark chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this, and I want you to place yourself in the story. So I want you to think about the things that normally cause you shame, and I want you to identify with this leper 
And then I want, um, then we're going to pray together and we're going to sing together. When he came down from the mountain, that's Jesus, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper, someone who was declared unclean, came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So with every head bowed, bring your shame story before the Savior of the world we all have to utter those words Lord if you will make me clean Father I pray for every story in the room that there would be plentiful redemption there would be cleansing, that there would be hope, that there would be renewal, that there would be washing, that there would be honor that would replace shame, that there would be dignity and worth and value restored. I pray that the years that the locusts have eaten and these stories would be swallowed up by the victory of Jesus. I pray that every person in this room would hear your voice saying, I will be clean. I pray that the scandal and the shame of the cross would eclipse our own shame stories. I pray that we would have the experience as we worship of being clothed in your own righteousness, in your own dignity, your own worth. I thank you that we are never going to be cut off again, that you have joined us to a family. I pray that in these next moments that you would continue to redeem and to restore and to renew and to bring hope. I pray that you would silence the voice of shame by a greater voice, the voice that it is finished for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.